It's great to see all of you here today. Uh, Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49 for our time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through Genesis as we continue in our study through this book. We come this morning to Genesis 49 verse 13, and my goal today is to cover verses 13 through 33, which takes us to the end of the second from the last chapter of Genesis. And if you want to give a title to the message, it would be, hopefully that's coming up soon, the grand finale of blessings. The grand finale of uh, blessings. I do hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving uh, week this past week. Thanksgiving is a time in which we, maybe a little bit more than Normal, even though this should be normal for us, we stop to give thanks to God for the blessings that he has given uh, to us. So I am sure that if that is the case with you, that uh, you and I have spent uh, this past week trafficking in the language of blessing as we have been thanking God for his blessings in our lives. The truth is that we all use the language of blessing probably more than we even realize. Uh, When someone asks us how we are doing, often we will say, I am blessed. Uh, When bidding farewell to someone, we may say, have a blessed day or God bless you. Uh, Where I grew up, when you felt really sorry for someone, uh, you would say, oh, bless his heart. And you'd use the word bless in that context. If you listen to your prayers and the prayers of other people, probably the most frequent prayer request that we all utter is for the Lord to bless so-and-so. And Uh, and I won't criticize that at all. I think that's wonderful. Even uh, sometimes when we don't know how to pray Uh, as we ought, and we don't know what else specifically to ask for. The word bless seems as a good catch-all sort of word that expresses everything good and wholesome that we would want God to do in that person's life that we are praying for. Speaking of blessing, when someone sneezes, what do we do? What do we say? We say, bless you. And when we sneeze, we expect someone to say that someone in the room to say that to us, and if they don't, we kind of feel like they've left us hanging. Monday night of this past week, I sneezed four times in a row within a span of 10 seconds, and my wife was sitting on the couch right across from me, and she didn't say, bless you, to me between my sneezes even once, and I took notice of that and chose to call her on it. When my sneezing fit was over, I said to her, what's up with that? You didn't even bless me one time. She said, I was waiting for you to finish. She left me hanging. That's what she did. But I share all this to say that if if you like the language of blessing, and you should, the book of Genesis will not leave you hanging at all because blessing is one of the major themes that runs through the full length of the book of Genesis and it comes to a grand finale in our passage today where we're actually going to see a form of the word blessing showing up nine times over the span of just four verses and to set us up for what we're going to see in our passage today, I want to start off by taking a little bit of time to track the theme of blessing from the first chapter of Genesis all the way to our text for today. This will take a little bit of time, but I believe that it will be worth it for all of us. Just going back to Genesis chapter 1, on the fifth day of creation, God created the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. And then we're told in Genesis 1.22 that God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. On the sixth day of creation, God created Adam and Eve 
And then we're told in Genesis 1.28 that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God then points out to them all the food that he has provided for them to enjoy and feast upon. We're told in Genesis chapter 2 verse Three, that on the seventh day, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. So this was the world in its original unfallen state, a blessed mankind ruling over blessed creatures with an especially blessed seventh day in which to rest. As one writer says, the pre-fall world was a world wrapped in divine blessing. But we have seen, it was five years ago, back when we began our study of the book of Genesis, and about four years ago, we saw how Adam and Eve were led into sin by the serpent in the garden and were expelled from the garden that God had made for them and were left to endure the curses of a fallen existence. As the centuries rolled by thereafter, the wickedness of mankind became great upon the earth until every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. God was grieved in his heart over the evil of mankind and destroyed mankind through a worldwide flood, killing every person except Noah and the members of his family because Noah had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. After Noah and his family came out of the ark, we're told in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which they did. Soon thereafter, Noah seems to mark off the line of Shem, invoking the language of blessing, saying in Genesis nine twenty six, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Years later, God speaks to a man named Abram, a descendant of Shem, and calls him to leave his home country and to head to a land that God would show him. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, God speaks to Abraham and says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Melchizedek meets up with Abram two chapters later, we're told in Genesis fourteen nineteen that he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram. Of God most high. In Genesis 22, verse 17 and 18, after Abraham showed his willingness to sacrifice Isaac on the altar, God speaks to Abraham, and literally in the Hebrew text, he says in verse 17, Blessing, I will bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 25, Abraham dies. But we are told in Genesis 25 and verse 11 that it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Clearly, Isaac now has the blessing of Abraham Upon him, and it is now his duty to carry this blessing forward. In Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4, God speaks to Isaac and says, Sojourn in this land, the land of Canaan, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis 27, 
a form of the word bless shows up 23 times. In this chapter, a blind Isaac who thinks he's about to die intends to bless his son Esau, but Jacob deceives his father into thinking that he is Esau. And as a result of that deception, Isaac blessed him. Speaking of Jacob in verse 23, after Jacob's deceit was discovered, Isaac was mortified, but he doesn't take the blessing back. In fact, he confirms the blessing and says in verse 33, yes, and he shall be blessed. Well, Esau is furious upon hearing this and resolves to kill Jacob. In Genesis 28, we read in verse 1 that Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And he tells him to get out of Dodge and to go up to Padanaram and to find a wife up there among his relatives. And Isaac said to him, verse 3, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Jacob then goes up to Padanaram to his uncle Laban's house, and it's here that the soap opera really begins. Jacob is tricked by his father-in-law into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah. Shortly thereafter, Jacob ends up getting Rachel as a wife also. He has four sons through Leah. Rachel gets jealous because she is unable to bear children, so Rachel offers Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah, through whom Jacob has two additional sons. Leah gets jealous and offers Jacob her maidservant, Zilpah, through whom Jacob has two more sons. Leah then has two more sons. And then finally, Rachel has Joseph. Jacob responds to God's call and returns to Canaan to his father's house, but Jacob knows that he must meet up with Esau first. The night before he meets up with Esau, God took on the form of a man and wrestled with Jacob through the night. And as the sun was about to rise the next morning and God was wanting to leave, Jacob would not let him go. In Genesis thirty-two twenty-six, Jacob said to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So we're told in Genesis 32:29 that God renamed him Israel and he blessed him there. What's clear from the narrative of the book of Genesis is that the blessing of God, yes, it existed in a pre-fall world, but it persists in a post-fall world, even persisting despite the faults and the foibles of the very people who carry that special blessing of God. Genesis presents us with the astonishing truth that though mankind has sinned against God, God is still intent on bringing blessing to all of the families of the earth with a blessing that he's going to bring to the world through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We've seen that the blessing of God that Jacob now carries is so powerful that it impacts other people in his life. Jacob's uncle Laban twice professed that he experienced the blessing of God in his own life as long as Jacob was with him. We also saw recently how Jacob had a conversation with the Pharaoh in Egypt and twice were told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh after which point Pharaoh becomes the most prosperous man on the planet. Evidently, it's the most awesome thing to receive a blessing from Jacob. In Genesis 48, we found Jacob sitting up on his deathbed, adopting Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And in verse 15 and following, we read that, he blessed Joseph 
and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, speaking of Ephraim and Manasseh. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. In Genesis 48, 20, we read that Jacob blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, shall pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Here is Jacob on his deathbed, and the language of blessing is on his lips as he is blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, whom he has adopted now as his own sons. Last week, we came into Genesis 49, a chapter in which this theme of blessing reaches its climax. Jacob calls for his sons at the beginning of Genesis 49. In verse 1, we read, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. From the language here, we see that Jacob intends to prophesy. And when he's done speaking to each of his sons, the narrator will say in verse 28, this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Last week, we witnessed Jacob speaking to his first four sons. He starts with Reuben and says some hard things to Reuben. He tells Reuben that he will not have preeminence in Israel because of his sin with Bilhah, but at least Reuben will have a place in Israel. That's blessing. Jacob then speaks to Simeon and to Levi. He speaks about their sin in Shechem and tells them that they will have a scattered existence in Israel, but at least they will have a portion in Israel. That's blessing. Then Jacob speaks some amazing words of blessing to Judah, promising that rule will be given to Judah and will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Jacob then says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God had promised to bring blessing to all of the families of the earth through Abraham and Isaac. And now here we see that this blessing will come to the nations under the reign of one named Shiloh, the giver of rest, to whom the nations will give their obedience. We ended last week with the blessing that Jacob speaks to Judah. And today we'll pick up here and we'll observe seven acts of Jacob that brings his life of covenant blessing to a satisfying conclusion. The first act of Jacob that we see in our passage for today is he blesses Zebulun and Issachar, his final two sons, through Leah. Jacob has addressed his first four sons through Leah. Now he addresses his final two sons through her. Zebulun, interestingly, is actually the sixth son of Leah, and Issachar is the fifth, but Jacob delivers his blessing to Zebulun first, giving him a priority that is found elsewhere also in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 33 and in Joshua 19. Clearly, Zebulun was the more preeminent of these two brothers for reasons that I think will be evident even in our text today. Listen to what Jacob says to Zebulun in verse 13. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Sidon was actually a principal city of Phoenicia. So when Jacob speaks of Sidon, he's probably using the name as a metonym for the region of Phoenicia, which Zebulun's descendants ended up living near 
given that they were situated in the northern part of Canaan. Jacob's statement that Zebulun will dwell at the seashore could better be translated as saying that Zebulun will dwell toward the seashore, speaking of both the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the Sea of Galilee to the east. Zebulun is usually depicted as settling in this landlocked region that you see on the map behind me, but Jacob's language here and the language of Deuteronomy 33 verse 19 seems to argue for a broader allotment that extended further east and further west. The Jewish historian uh, Josephus tells us that the tribe of Zebulun's lot included the land which lay as far as the lake of Gennesareth, which is the Sea of Galilee, and that which belonged to the sea, the big sea, speaking of the Mediterranean Sea. So it's likely that many of Zebulun's descendants ended up commingling with the tribe of Asher to the west and Naphtali to the east, drawing the wealth of the seas into Zebulun's actual territory. As for Issachar, listen to what Jacob says about him in verses 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey. In Jacob's day, this was a good thing to say about someone. If someone came up to you in this day and said, you're a strong donkey, you would have blushed and said, thank you. You're very kind. However, while this is a good description of Issachar, Jacob then describes Issachar as a strong donkey that is lying down between the sheepfolds, taking it easy. What is Jacob trying to describe here? Speaking of Issachar, Jacob says in verse 15, when he, Issachar, saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Wow, these are not good words. Jacob seems to be speaking prophetically based on a tendency that he has observed in Issachar. It seems that Issachar was a strong man, but he loved his comfort and was not very ambitious. As Jacob looks into the future, he sees that Issachar's descendants will have physical strength, but they will be all too ready to become a toiling labor band for others as long as a fair amount of ordinary creature comforts could be enjoyed. These words that Jacob is speaking to Issachar may not sound like much of a blessing, but Issachar should consider himself blessed to have heard them. Jacob's words are a warning to Issachar, a warning that Issachar's descendants did not ultimately give heed to. Issachar's descendants will have a bright moment or two in the centuries to come, but they also will find themselves experiencing the very kind of bondage that Jacob is describing here. Jacob then moves on to his son, Dan, who is the first son of Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, which brings us to the second act of Jacob that brings his life a blessing to a satisfying end. Number two, he blesses Dan, his first son, his first of four sons through his concubines. Jacob ended up having four sons through Bilhah and Zilpah, and some may have wondered if these sons through his concubines would end up receiving an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but Jacob lays those doubts to rest here. In verse 16, Jacob speaks of Dan and says, Dan shall judge his people. And the word, the name Dan and the word judge are from the same Hebrew word. Literally, he's saying Dan shall deen his people as one of the tribes of Israel. There will, in fact, be a judge who will arise from the tribe of Dan during the period of the judges but most importantly for right now, Jacob is saying that 
Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan would have been thrilled to learn here that his descendants will be a part of Israel, even though Dan was born from Jacob's concubine. That said, Jacob says yet another thing about Dan that is open to interpretation. Verse 17, he says, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. And all God's people said, From a positive standpoint, Jacob could be saying that though Dan will be small, he will prove cunning and dangerous to his enemies. In fact, a future judge will arise from Dan who will be known for his craftiness and for his ability to strike suddenly and powerfully and to wreak havoc on his enemies. You know who that judge is? A judge's name was Samson of the tribe of Dan, and ancient Jewish interpreters understood Jacob's words here to be referring to Samson. Having said that, other interpreters, both ancient and modern, think that Jacob's likening Dan to a serpent suggests something sinister about Dan. And they point out that it was through Dan that idolatry made inroads into Israel. And you read about that in Judges chapter 18. Interestingly enough, when you read Revelation 7 about the 144,000 witnesses of the 12 tribes of Israel who will faithfully give testimony for the Lord, Dan's name is not included among the tribes who will each provide 12,000 faithful witnesses of God in the coming tribulation period. All other tribes are mentioned, but not Dan's. And perhaps the reason for that is described here in this text. I'll let you study that out further. So Jacob's language about Dan being a serpent and striking at the heel may be a bad thing, and it almost certainly seems to remind Jacob of God's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to send a champion who will be of the seed of the woman who will be struck on the heel by the seed of the serpent who seduced Eve to sin in the garden. The serpent will strike this champion on the heel. Jacob longs for this coming champion to arrive because though he will be struck on the heel by the serpent, he will crush the head of the serpent and win the ultimate victory in a future day. And perhaps Jacob is now thinking about all of this and it seems to cause him to pause in his blessings and to speak to the Lord directly and to utter a cry of longing and of faith to Jehovah. This brings us to the third act of Jacob, which serves to bring his life of covenant blessing to a satisfying conclusion. Number three, he confesses his faith in a coming salvation from Jehovah. Listen to what Jacob says in verse 18. For your salvation, I wait, O Jehovah, or Lord. To wait for something means that you believe it's coming. So much so that you're willing to wait for its arrival. It means that you're waiting patiently rather than trying to take matters into your own hands prematurely and try to accomplish the thing itself. It means that you're waiting expectantly rather than giving up all hope and thinking that this salvation may not be coming after all. This is a wonderful glimpse into the heart of Jacob. He's a man of faith all the way to the very end. Speaking to Jehovah, Jacob says, for your salvation, I wait. Jacob is admitting that he and his family need a salvation that will come in human history. It's a salvation that they cannot achieve on their own, but it's one that must come from Jehovah. And Jacob is saying, 
For your salvation, I wait, O Jehovah. You'll be interested to know that this is the first time in the Bible that we see the word salvation. And it's on the lips of Jacob. And it's specifically said to be something that is Jehovah's to give. Some ancient Jewish interpreters understood Jacob's words as messianic here. One of the Jewish Targums paraphrased Jacob as saying, for the redemption of the Messiah, which you have promised to bring, for this redemption, I wait. Even more significantly, the Hebrew word that is translated salvation here is the word Yeshua. Literally, Jacob here is saying, for your Yeshua, I wait, O Lord. Does the name Yeshua ring a bell? It should. It's the Hebrew name for Jesus. Quite literally, Jacob is right now speaking to Jehovah, saying, I wait for your Jesus. Before this chapter is over, Jacob will die, but he will die in faith, waiting for Jesus. Having uttered this plaintive cry of hope and faith, Jacob moves on to bless his other sons, which brings us to his fourth act, which serves to bring his life a blessing to a satisfying end. Number four, he blesses Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, born from his concubines. Gad was the first son of Jacob's concubine, Zilpah, through whom Jacob sired two sons. Listen to what Jacob says regarding Gad. As for Gad, he says in verse 19, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. This is a good thing. The descendants of Gad will end up settling to the east of the Jordan River, so they won't have the Jordan River to serve as a protective barrier against their enemies attacking from the east. This will leave them vulnerable to attacks from the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Arameans, but they will learn how to fight back against these raids and to send their enemies running, and they will chase after their enemies as their enemies run back home to where they came from. As for Jacob's son, Asher, listen to what Jacob says about him, who was the second-born son of Zilpah. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties, or literally the luxuries of kings. As you see on the map behind me, the tribe of Asher will end up settling along the northwestern coast of Canaan and will have an allotment of land that encompasses one of the most fertile parts of the land of Canaan, producing a rich supply of wheat and oil in absolute abundance. Naphtali was the second son of Bilhah. And listen to what Jacob says about him. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. The doe was a symbol for fleet-footedness in the Old Testament in various places. In Jacob's words here, Naphtali is represented here as a fast runner and also as a giver of beautiful words. This could mean that Naphtali was the wordsmith in the family, one who had a flair for writing beautiful words and delivering beautiful speeches. In all likelihood, in describing Naphtali as a fast runner and a bringer of good words, Jacob is tying the two ideas together, depicting Naphtali as one who runs fast as a messenger in order to bring good news to other people. And we all should be like Naphtali in that sense. I don't think it's coincidental that Jesus will start his public ministry in the region of Naphtali. 
where he will begin his ministry by delivering the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It will be in Naphtali's territory where Jesus will call Peter and Andrew to come and to follow him so that he can make them fishers of men. It will be in Naphtali's territory where Jesus will call James and John to come and follow him. Naphtali's territory will be the location where Jesus will preach the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, speaking beautiful words and pronouncing blessing upon the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are pure in heart and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Speaking good news to them. Jesus actually performed much of his public ministry in Naphtali's territory. And the reason we even know about what Jesus did in this region and in every other region is because of faithful souls whom Jesus set loose to run throughout all the earth declaring the good news about him. I'm sure that Jacob could not have even begun to fathom all that his words to Naphtali would mean. But we have some idea of what these words mean because we see the fulfillment of these things in the New Testament. As for Jacob, he engages in yet another act which serves to bring his life a blessing to a satisfying end. Number five, he blesses Joseph, his first son, through Rachel. Of all Jacob's sons, Joseph gets the longest blessing. In fact, if you add up everything he says to all 12 of his sons, uh, 48.5% of his words are devoted to Judah and Joseph alone. Almost half, just those two men, Judah and Joseph. But Joseph actually gets more words spoken to him than even Judah Listen to what Jacob says about Joseph. Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. Jacob is depicting Joseph as a tree being nourished by a stream of water that supplies the roots with plenty of nourishment. More specifically, he depicts Joseph as a large and fruitful branch of a tree, a branch that will be so large and so fruitful that it runs over a wall and is being enjoyed and harvested by people beyond the wall. This totally describes Joseph. Joseph grew up in the land of Canaan, but now he's in Egypt, bringing blessing there beyond the walls of where he grew up. And because of God's blessing on Joseph in Egypt, all of Egypt ended up with so much food that people from the surrounding nations are coming and enjoying the plenty that is in Egypt. This kind of expansive flourishing characterized the life of Joseph and will characterize his descendants as well in the centuries to come. Joseph's allotment of land given to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh will be far larger than any other brother receives when you put them together. But things were not always so good for Joseph, though. Jacob continues in verse 23, and he says, The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were Agile. There's no incident that we have in the book of Genesis where Joseph was being attacked by archers, but I think Jacob here is using metaphor. We have seen occasions where Joseph was bitterly attacked. We're told in Genesis 37 that his brothers could not speak a friendly word to him because they hated him so much. If they couldn't speak a friendly word because they hated him so much, imagine the words they did speak to him, firing them like arrows at their brother. They hated him so much that they physically attacked him and threw him into a pit 
and ended up selling him as a slave to some Ishmaelites who were traveling down to Egypt. Sometime thereafter, Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, who was angered by his refusal of her advances. She fired the arrows of slander against him, which landed him in prison. But Joseph's bow remained firm, his arms remained agile, and he remained steadfast in the face of all of these adversities. Where did he get his strength from? Look in the middle of verse 24. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, from the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty, and that's the word Shaddai, by Shaddai who blesses you, who blesses you now with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You could almost hear the fireworks going off in this grand finale of blessing where name after name of God comes firing out of Jacob's dying mouth. Jacob's strength or Joseph's strength to remain faithful came from God. God who is described as the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, as the God of Joseph's father. And as the God who helps him, and as the God who is Shaddai, the powerful one who can do whatever he pleases. Jacob is saying that God brought the full range of his personhood and attributes to Joseph's aid to help him through all of his troubles. And it is he who will henceforth be blessing Joseph with blessings from heaven above Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb, which speak of fertility in the years to come. If you're going through a hard time right now, I just want you to know there is no aspect of who God is that he withholds from you. He brings the full weight of his personhood and his attributes to bear on being a help to you. You take every name of God and that's all lined up. That's who he is, and he's here to help you and to bring every good characteristic of him, every attribute to bear on helping you to remain faithful, just like he did for Joseph. Speaking of blessings, Jacob then says the following in verse 26. He says to Joseph, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting or ancient hills. In other words, he's saying God's blessings on me have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors as far as the mountains tower above the earth. I'm so blessed. I've been so blessed, Jacob is saying. And as for those blessings that have been upon Jacob, he gathers them all up and listen to his benediction to Joseph Verse 26, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of his head, of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Jacob speaks to no other son in quite this manner. It's as if he is taking off the crown of blessing right now, being about to die and placing it now on Joseph's head in a way that distinguishes Joseph from his brothers, the preeminence that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, had lost because of his sin is now placed upon the head of Joseph. And the choice was clearly made by God who distinguished Joseph from his brothers. And Jacob is simply rolling with what God has already made obvious. And I don't think any of the brothers protested or begrudged Joseph this honor. When you look at the map of Canaan on the screen behind me, you see the allotment that was given to Joseph's two sons. It's obvious that he is the one who received the double inheritance that belongs to the firstborn son.
Well, where do you go after delivering a grand finale, a blessing such as what Jacob just delivered to Joseph? Well, you go to Benjamin, who is Jacob's final son and the second son of Rachel. And this brings us to the sixth act of Jacob that brings his life of covenant blessing to a satisfying conclusion. Number six, he blesses Benjamin, his second son, through Rachel. Listen to what he says about Benjamin in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. And in the evening, he divides the spoil. In this statement, Benjamin and his descendants are depicted as being wolf-like in the way they devour their enemies and yet generous on the other side of those victories. Benjamin is not someone you wanted to trifle with. He tears his prey to pieces and devours his prey, yet he brings home the spoil of his conquest and freely shares it with others. Throughout Israel's history, the descendants of Benjamin were always great warriors who knew how to fight. And they had a reputation for showing great bravery in war. The first judge of Israel to arise during the period of the judges was Ehud, who descended from Benjamin. We learn in First Chronicles that the tribe of Benjamin provided archers who were valiant in battle. And it should not surprise us that Israel's very first king was a mighty warrior named Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. We should also note that Jesus will be crucified in the land allotted to Benjamin. On the morning of Christ's crucifixion, Christ will be devoured and torn to pieces on Benjamin's land, but he will then be raised and the spoils of his victory in Benjamin's territory will be shared with people the world over, including being shared with us in this room today. With this benediction regarding Benjamin, Jacob's work of blessing is done. Listen to the summary statement in verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Some of Jacob's sons received better words of blessing than other sons did, but all of Jacob's sons were blessed to hear everything that Jacob had to say. Jacob knew his sons. He knew their tendencies, both good and bad, and every son was blessed to hear what Jacob had to say, even if it was words of warning that they needed to give heed to. And by the way, as you read through everything Jacob says to each of his sons, one of the things you'll notice is that there is no judgment on any of Jacob's sons for anything that they did to Joseph. He doesn't hold anything against his sons for their sins, their crimes against Joseph. It is all covered in grace because of Yeshua, because of Shiloh and the salvation that Jacob awaits this grace can be given having delivered these words of guidance and prophecy and blessing Jacob has just one more matter to tend to before he dies and that's to just make sure his sons bury him in Canaan not in Egypt in the last chapter we saw him telling Joseph to make sure that Joseph buried him in the land of Canaan. And here he's going to repeat that and insist to all of his sons that they take his body to Canaan and bury him there. And this brings us to the final act of Jacob. Number seven, he charges his sons to bury him in his family grave in Canaan. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 29. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, 
in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there, Jacob says, I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. So he's given them a whole lot of detail here and saying, make sure you bury me there in Canaan. And in the next chapter, we will see his sons honor their father's request and bury him there. And with that item of business tended to observe what Jacob does, and this brings us to the last verse of this remarkable chapter, verse 33. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This is such a private family moment, and we're blessed to be invited in to witness Jacob as he dies Surrounded by his sons, we've, we've grown attached to Jacob, have we not? Over these last many chapters, we witnessed him being born and taking his first breath way back in Genesis chapter 25. And now it's kind of sad to see him taking his final breath here. Jacob had been sitting on the side of the bed as he spoke with his feet on the floor, but now he begins to lie back in the bed with his work finished, and he uses his last little bit of strength that he has to draw his feet up into the bed, and then he breathes his last with his sons gathered around him. Jacob's sons are now without their father, but as for Jacob, we're told he was gathered to his people. Yes, Jacob is being taken from his sons right now, but in dying, he's being gathered to another people. Who are the people that he is being gathered to? The text says his people, meaning people to whom he belonged, people who truly belong to him. This would include Abraham and Isaac, would include Noah and Shem, and other relatives, and friends, and people of faith who were waiting for Jacob on the other side of death. Derek Kidner, the commentator, draws great meaning from this expression and suggests that it denotes the reunion with friends who have gone before and therefore presupposes the personal continuance of man after death. The language that the narrator is using here assumes that there is life after death, a life of community with people beyond the curtain of death. When a person dies in the Lord, the unseen hand of God gathers him into this community of people whose company he can now enjoy on the other side of physical death. This is a doctrine that becomes much more developed in the New Testament, but we're so blessed to see it here so early in Scripture with Jacob. We'll stop here for today. Let me just ponder two things with you as we close this morning. First of all, we might find ourselves envying Jacob's sons, especially envying Joseph, like, man, I'd love to have something like that spoken over me, be blessed in this way, that Joseph and his brothers would be the recipients of such words of blessing from one so mighty as Jacob, who had the blessing of Abraham upon him. But the truth is, guys, that if you have believed in Jesus, you've been brought into that blessing. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. And that's talking about you if you believe in Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus, that means that you were among the very people that God was thinking about back in Genesis 12 when he first made this promise to Abraham. God was thinking about you. This means that when you read the book of Genesis, you're reading about the beginnings of your own salvation story that has been in the works long before you arrived on the scene. You are actually a very late arrival to your own salvation story that was in the works even as early as Genesis and even before the events recorded in Genesis. If you have believed in Jesus, then it is true that God himself has placed his hands upon you and has spoken over you and has given you the blessing of Abraham and brought you into these blessings. If you're here today and God is touching your heart to do so, believe in Jesus. What's stopping you? Believe in Jesus today. Thousands of years of human history have been involved in bringing about an amazing salvation through Christ that is now available for you. And you have opportunity to receive this salvation today and you don't have to wait another day. Jacob died in faith, having not yet received the fullness of the promise. Moments before he died, he speaks to God and says, for your Yeshua, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. But the salvation he was waiting for has come. The Yeshua, the Jesus that he was waiting for has come. Jesus came into this world and he was born of a virgin and he lived an absolutely perfect life and went about everywhere doing nothing but good at every turn and teaching words the likes of which the world had never heard before. And he died upon a cross and shed his blood in order to provide atonement for sinners like you and for me. And God raised him from the dead and ascended him to his own right hand so that now all those who believe in Jesus can have salvation from their sins. So the one that Jacob was waiting for in Genesis 49 has come. So what are you waiting for? Believe in Jesus and be saved from the wrath of God. And you will find yourself blessed with Abraham, the believer. You'll find yourself ready to die when your time comes to breathe your last. And when you do breathe your last, you will experience God gathering you to your people the primary one of which is Yeshua, whom you will be with forever. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for Yeshua, Jesus, and all that he endured so that through him we might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your unsearchable wisdom and how you, through the brokenness of human history, could still persist in bringing blessing to peoples of every tribe and tongue and nation, including many of us in this room. You had every reason after the fall of man to just say, no more blessing, only curse, only curses. But you persisted in your aim to bless the nations and at great cost to yourself you provided that blessing through Jesus. And we thank you this morning for Yeshua, for Jesus.
and for your willingness to surrender him over that we might have a salvation we could have never attained to on our own. Save anyone in this room, Lord, who has yet to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you today, Lord. Receive these funds that we give and this offering and do much with all that is given for the glory of Jesus and the spread of the message of salvation through him and help us as a people to be swift like does to bring beautiful good words, words of salvation, words of good news about Jesus to those who need to hear them. We surrender ourselves to you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.